Hello and welcome to the Bankers podcast series, Banking in Transition, looking at how the banking industry is adapting to the new normal as a world begins to recover from the global pandemic. I'm Joy McKnight, editor of The Banker, and my guest this week is Rohinta Medora, who's president at the Centre for International Governance Innovation, which is a think tank on global governance. Thanks so much for joining me, Rohinta. Thank you for having me. So my first question um, is sort of taking that overall look um, at how the COVID-19 pandemic has really accelerated digitalization in the financial sector. What is your view on that? I'd say the, the emphasis there is on the word accelerated, that there were underlying trends in digitization that predated COVID. And what COVID has done, especially at the consumer level, is uh, simply forced uh, more people from different age groups and different socioeconomic and geographic backgrounds uh, to use electronic banking, uh, to order in, to pay uh, by, uh, by the internet and so on. And so the rise in the use of digitized services is striking. Uh, your listeners would have you know, access to more proprietary information on this than perhaps I would. But what struck me is some work, for example, that Ernst & Young has done that finds, and this, by the way, mirrors um, other uh, such, such indices, that when you ask people whether they will stay on this uh, trend, the numbers are remarkably sobering. Uh, one study found that only 16% of consumers would want to remain as digitized as they are during COVID, uh, which tells me that there's three things at play when it comes to digitization and COVID. One is the capability of the financial sector to supply digitized services, and on that we're doing just fine. The sector is agile, it is resilient, and has historically invested, unlike you know, uh, public services or hospitals, has invested in uh, modern ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. But second, there's the demand by consumers. And this is where there might be a block. And third is the capability of data governance regimes to permit more and more digitization across, especially across borders. And so the net result is an increase because of COVID. How sustained it is, hard to say. Because it's also very interesting, you know, obviously COVID has made this big push uh, to digital, um, but even before the pandemic, there was already emerging some concern about the digital divide in financial services. You know, how do you think countries can best address this divide that may be opening up and um, and continuing post-COVID? So the digital divide is a very um, digital issue. It is one of long-standing, but I'm afraid my answer is going to be a very analog answer to that, which is you address the digital divide the way public authorities and governments um, and private sectors address any divide. And so I'd say when it comes to the digital divide in financial services, the first step is financial literacy, education, all the things that we expect right from primary through to secondary and post-secondary. We need strong education systems for people to be able to participate effectively in the modern digital economy. Second, connectivity. Um, 
a major driver of the digital divide, both within countries and especially between them, is levels of connectivity. Uh, that again, broadband access is a classic public intervention, public good question. And third, um, trust and confidence in modern technologies. And I'm struck if I could make the analogy with vaccines, how many people are doubters of vaccines? But if you look, for example, uh, on data in the US among black and Latino communities that have historically been discriminated against uh, in the medical system, the leeriness vis-a-vis -vis vaccines is higher than in other socioeconomic and ethnic groups. Uh, one might make the same point about financial services, that groups that have traditionally not done as well by participating in the modern formal financial sector would be less keen to take up digitization. And so building trust and confidence in modern processes and making them inclusive so that they're not seen as historically propagating or continuing uh, fault lines would be an important uh, piece in the puzzle as well. Excellent. And you touched on it a little bit in the answer to your first question, but I'm interested in, in data and the data governance. You know, how would you say that this greater digitalization is really intersecting with what many people look at as gaps in the global governance of, in data? So I've argued elsewhere, and I would say to you, Joy, that we, we live in a world that is imperfect blindingly obvious. We live in a world in which we know that there are gaps in different parts of global governance, be it climate change, trade, finance, you name it. But I would argue that the gaps we see in the digital arena are the sharpest of them all, and they're also the most immediate. The architecture we currently have dates back to the post-World War II era, and most of it dates back to the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. Um, since then, the world has changed, uh, to put it mildly, and we simply don't have the architecture to deal with it. So let me give you three or four examples of where the gaps in global governance intersect with digitization. Effectively, we live in a world that's balkanized in at least three and probably four data zones. Um, and at the risk of, sort of simplifying each one, I'd say we have a China zone in which uh, data is held by the state, uh, allegedly in the public interest, but held by the state. And citizens do not have control over it, including personal data. Uh, the second zone, which is almost an analog of the China case, is the US zone, in which, again, um, citizens have very little control over the data that, that they generate. Um, it is big tech, private sector firms, digital platforms that control it. And so in both China and the US, citizens are largely disempowered from the data uh, governance regime. Then you have what in many ways is seen as the bright light and the norm that we all aspire to, which is the European Union and the GDPR, in which, albeit imperfectly, but citizens do have some control over the data that they generate. And then you've got the fourth, uh, countries like Canada, like India, lots and lots of countries who either don't belong to one of these three zones or um, free ride on them. 
And so the first gap in global governance is to understand that we simply don't have globalization when it comes to data. It is the biggest challenge, in my view, for digital diplomacy and for groups like the G20 to bridge the very real gaps that we have in these uh, three, four data zones. And I think this is going to be the challenge if countries and companies are going to think and operate truly globally. Then you have a series of secondary but not unimportant questions that derive from this balkanization. The fact that we don't have harmonized tax regimes, the fact that we still have tax havens so that digital platforms generate wealth in one part of the world but declare it in another mm -hmm. is, is an important issue that the OECD and the G20 are working through. Um, and otherwise you have ad hoc attempts like France and the UK, recently Australia, to deal with this uh, wealth creation and public tra tra taxation question. Mm. We don't have norms around data and how they're generated, how they're stored and how they're used. And last and not least, again, coming back to COVID and think of all the apps that we're using for tracking and tracing and so on. Um, there's a series of issues to do with privacy, surveillance and human rights that we haven't really addressed which we also have to coming out of COVID. And so I think the digital governance agenda is a rich one and an urgent one. And you've previously called for a digital stability board, somewhat like the financial stability board um, and data stewards. You know, why are you arguing for this? So let's go back to the years leading up to the financial crisis in 2007, eight perhaps nine, um, when there were inklings that um, macroeconomic stability, socioeconomic goals, uh, and, and the way finance operated weren't quite coordinated, and that uh, contagion, uh, which we had known even previously, could not be contained. And when the crisis happened, it brought that home to us in a very urgent way. And the response of the global community was to create what began as the Financial Stability Forum and then became the Financial Stability Board. And some of us would argue the next step is to turn it into a treaty-based organization um, in line or on par with the World Bank, IMF, um, and the WTO, because we really need a membership organization that does what? Well, what the FSB does is monitor financial risk, prepare reports on best practice and on different types of risk, provide the table and safe space where policymakers and other stakeholders can meet and discuss issues and options, and in general, create that ecosystem through which financial sector issues can be properly addressed. I would make, based on what I just said about the state of affairs in digital, the same case for a digital stability board, that when you have a lack of governance in digital, it plays out in your privacy, your human rights, the quality of your democracy, the information we receive and don't receive, the way in which we make payments um, and how safe they are and all kinds of other uses. And so think of a digital stability board as being um, a membership organization 
containing all stakeholders, not just governments, that meet to discuss best practice, to put together norms and perhaps uh, recommended legislation over time to enforce it, to create a state-of-the-art um, risk monitoring mechanism so that we have the same confidence and governance for digital issues that we take for granted in finance. Uh, and I wanted to go on maybe to talk a little bit about some of the multilateral organizations, let's say the G20 or the World Trade Organization. You know, obviously the global economy is changing quite rapidly. You know, what future do you think these organizations have and what do you think they need to be really focused on today? Data is now the driving force uh, for better and for worse behind not just economic decisions, but social, political and cultural decisions, because it is through digitized data that we produce information, receive information and process it. Um, if you're the WTO, it isn't therefore just about e-commerce. And yet we have an organization that comes at data through an e-commerce negotiation. Um, if you're the IMF, it is increasingly about the impact that cryptocurrencies would have on macroeconomic stability, on the division of seniorage, for example, on how fintech affects consumer choices. These are all classic financial sector and macroeconomic issues mm. that the IMF was created for anyway. And so I guess I'm arguing that all of these organizations have to become effectively data stewards. They have to understand that it is through data that we turn data to information and then to wisdom and to good policy and practice. And these organizations, which date back six or seven decades, uh, have a reckoning. And the reckoning have to do with how agile they are to understand not just their siloed sense of data, but also the crosscut around it. Uh, this is where the G20 comes in. Uh, I would completely understand that the IMF and the WTO and indeed the World Bank have their mandates. But to bring those mandates together and to understand that data cross-cuts them is really the job of a G20 and I would argue of a digital stability board. So everyone seems to be talking about how we can build back better post-COVID. You know, what do you think that will look like in 2021 and maybe beyond? I would focus on the and beyond part of your question. I think 2021 in some parts of the world might look better than 2020 just because we have a vaccine rollout. But the real normal that will uh, come into being won't be until much after. Uh, even in the developed, developed world, and then you know one or two countries like Israel that are uh, well ahead in the vaccination game. Uh, it won't be till the end of the calendar year that we have vaccination rates that create herd immunity. And then there are parts of Asia, Latin America, and Africa where increasingly the thinking is 2022 and 23. So let's be clear, speaking of digital divides, that there is a huge public health divide uh, triggered by COVID, which is not going to be addressed anytime soon. Then, you know, the question is, um, is this a race between vaccination and variants? Um, and 
and we still, the science is still unclear on whether the present family of vaccines can address the variants that we are seeing and that may come our way, uh, and how quickly the mRNA technology can adapt to it. Let's assume that all goes well. Uh, most of the estimates still find that growth rates and employment rates are not going to recover to anything like a pre-COVID level for at least three or four years and perhaps more. Um, there is going to be a reckoning that will come with the massive deficit spending that absolutely every country in the world has signed on to. Mm -hmm. um, and at this stage, going back to our first uh, exchange on your first question, we don't know how the digital divide will intersect with the post-COVID divide, but there will be one. Um, COVID has simply highlighted the socioeconomic fault lines we had already seen in our societies. When I add all of this up, it's hard to see uh, a rosy picture, to be perfectly candid. Um, I do take the point, and I'm a big fan of seeing crises as opportunities. Uh, I'm especially sympathetic to the view that the deficit spending we're now doing should be used to address long-standing questions of environmental management and poverty. In some cases, that is happening. Is it happening enough to transform the world into a truly better place? Uh, very early to say, but one can always hope. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your insights, Rohinton. My pleasure, Joy. It was good to talk to you. And thanks to our audience for listening. Keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, and follow our discussions at thebanker.com slash podcast. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.